Shalom. Thanks for joining me. You're listening to the Semitic Jew Podcast. I'm your host, Semitic Jew. In last week's episode, we read from Genesis chapter 4, verse 8. In verse 8, we saw the consequences of Cain's unwillingness to keep the commandments of God. And he became angry when his righteous brother Abel enjoyed the commandments and lovingly obeyed the commandments. Cain robbed Abel of life, and only God has the right to give life and take life away. In this week's episode, we pick up our narrative right here in Genesis chapter 4, beginning in verse 9, and we're reading from verse 9 to verse 18. Let's begin. First of all, I want to begin by a straight reading of Genesis chapter 4, verse 9 to 18. And again, I'm reading from Genesis chapter 4 verse 9 to 18, and I'm reading from the King James Version. Again, that's Genesis chapter 4, verse 9 to 18. And the Lord said unto Cain, Where is Abel thy brother? And he said, I know not. Am I my brother's keeper? And he said, What hast thou done? The voice of thy brother's blood crieth unto me from the ground. And now... Art thou cursed from the earth, which hath opened her mouth to receive thy brother's blood from thy hand? When thou tillest the ground, it shall not henceforth yield unto thee her strength. A fugitive and a vagabond shall thou be in the earth. And Cain said unto the Lord, My punishment is greater than I can bear. Behold, thou hast driven me out this day from the face of the earth, and from thy face shall I be hid. And I shall be a fugitive and a vagabond in the earth, and it shall come to pass that every one that findeth me shall slay me. And the Lord said unto him, Therefore, whosoever slayeth Cain, vengeance shall be given on him sevenfold. And the Lord set a mark upon Cain, lest any finding him should kill him. And Cain went out from the presence of the Lord and dwelt in the land of Nod on the east of Eden. And Cain knew his wife. She conceived and bare Enoch, and he built a city and called the name of the city after the name of his son Enoch. And unto Enoch was born Irad, and Irad begot Mahu-Jahel, and Mahu-Jahel begot Methusael, and Methusael begot Lamech. Again, that's Genesis chapter 4, verse 9 to 18. Now, I want to begin exegeting these passages, and I'm going to start in, I'm going to read in verse 9, beginning in verse 9, I'm going to read the passage over, and I'm going to expound on it, okay? And I'm going to do this subsequently for each verse, okay? So if you're following along, again, this is Genesis chapter 4, verse 9 to 18, beginning in verse 9. So verse 9 says, And the Lord said unto Cain, Where is Abel, thy brother. And he said, I know not, am I, am I my brother's keeper? If we recall Genesis chapter 3, verse 11 to 13, Eve and her husband Adam confessed their sins before God. Although in their confession, when God came to them and began to look for them among the trees of the garden, 
and asked them who told you you were naked, they began to shift blame. Nevertheless, they confessed. Here, Cain outright lies to God about his brother's death, demonstrating several things. First, his attitude toward God, his absolute disrespect toward God, no reverence whatsoever, because obviously God sees all things. Also, his attitude towards sin, which sin is the transgression of the law. So Cain had disregard for God, disregard for God's laws, and Finally, his attitude towards the people who love righteousness and who love God. So those three things are very important to understand. Cain's attitude towards God, his attitude towards God's commandments, and his attitude towards the people of God. All of those things are interconnected in this narrative, in this very important historical narrative right here, because we see this happening today. The great persecution of the people of God, the disrespect for God's commandments, and subsequently the disrespect towards God altogether. Cain knew where his brother was. He physically attempted to get rid of Abel and to play the fool with sarcasm. And the sarcasm is expressed, expressed clearly in his question. God comes to him, asks, where is your brother Abel? And he says, I don't know. Am I my brother's keeper? Or in other words, how should I know where Abel is? Do I hang out with him all the time? Am I always around him? Should I be looking after him? He was being absolutely sarcastic. In other words, it's like he's saying, I don't know what makes you think I should know where Abel is. As I mentioned in last week's episode, Cain sinned in his speech, and there's more evidence right here. Sarcasm is of the devil. The world praises sarcasm. In fact, sarcasm is seen as a type of elite tongue. If you can speak sarcastically and with innuendos and in codes in a very eloquent and sophisticated manner, you are very likely admired by women, admired by men, and admired by politicians, etc. People admire people who uses sarcasm, but sarcasm is of the devil. We see Cain using it here. Now there, now we need to rightly divide because there is a healthy form of sarcasm. God uses sarcasm in the scriptures, but God uses sarcasm in in a righteous manner. It's just like all things. Can something be used for good? Uh, that's usually 100% a fact. Can something be used for evil? There's also 100% a fact as well. So we got to understand that there is a terrible aspect of life and there's also a beautiful aspect of life as well. Now, after Cain denies Abel's death in defiance, he objects to the implication that he was responsible for the murder. Right out. How should I know where, Cain, where Abel is? So he's, 
by implication, he's saying, how would I know? I'm, you know, I don't know where Abel is. So he's by default saying where a- wherever Abel is and uh, whoever he's with or what he's doing, I have no affiliation with it whatsoever. Now, verse 10, and he said, what hast thou done? The voice of thy brother's blood crieth unto me from the ground. Now, God approached Cain in the same way he approached Cain's parents earlier in Genesis chapter 3. God did not get a confession from Cain because there's no need for a confession for Cain. Now, should Cain have confessed his sins? Absolutely. But if you're God, there's no need of of a confession necessarily. Although God wants a confession, he wants us to repent and confess our sins. But God knows everything. That's the point. So when God knows everything, there's necessarily no need of a confession. But in humility, we must confess our sins. So God sees everything. So he wanted an explanation from Cain, but Cain did not give it. In Genesis chapter 16, verse 13, um, Hagar mentions something very important that we need to be keenly aware of and keenly aware of the God that we worship. Okay, listen carefully. So Hagar called God. Ata El Roy. I'm going to say that again. Ata El Roy, which means the God who sees me. Now, I want you to think about that. Okay, think about that in, in connection with Cain, Cain's error. He murdered his brother. He tried to cover it up, tried to get rid of potentially the evidence of his crimes. And he thought that he could somehow hide from God and that there would be no consequences from God. Okay, very important. The words that Hagar mentions in Genesis chapter 16, verse 13, Ata El Roy, the God who sees me. So by implication, that means God sees everything. God sees everything that we do, brothers and sisters, whether it be good or whether it be evil. And not only does he sees the things that we do, but God sees everything that is done to us. We, we know the history of the United States of America and all the atrocities that happened to the Negroes and the indigenous people here and in the United States. And it's a matter of fact that God saw everything that was going on. And it wasn't for our benefit. We didn't learn. We didn't come over here. And it was for our benefit that we were somehow taught Christianity and somehow given a language and then set free from slavery. We need to keep in mind, first of all, those same people who are arguing, well, the slaves were freed by the Europeans. Well, how can a people put others under rigorous slavery and then in turn free them and now they're supposed to be grateful it's an oxymoron is what it is but the point 
is that God sees all the evil that takes place in the earth. Every person, every person in history, God has saw everything that has happened and he has saw everything that has happened to the children of God, which is very comforting for us as Israelites, which is very comforting for the people of God. Now, I cannot say the same thing for people who are not Israelites and who are not the children of God, because the people who are not the children of God, well, guess what? They are enemies of God. So it is a warning unto them. In Psalms 139 verse 8, David says, if I go into heaven, you are there. If I make my bed in hell, behold, you are there. This goes into the argument for the omnipresence of Elohim. Nevertheless, the evidence God uses against Cain is Abel's blood. God sees everything, but the evidence that God has against Cain is Abel's blood. But it's interesting here because God mentions that Abel, Abel's blood is speaking to him. Okay, so although Cain cannot hear Abel's blood, God hears Abel's blood. And this begs the question, right? Because if Abel's blood is speaking, what is Abel's blood saying? What is Abel's blood crying out to God? And I believe we can go to the scriptures to find some information on this. In Revelation, the sixth chapter, verse 10, beginning, or excuse me, beginning in verse 9, I'm going to read verse 9 and 10. This is, again, Revelation chapter 6, verse 9 and 10. And, and when he had opened the fifth seal, I saw under the altar the souls of them that were slain for A, the word of God. Remember, the word of God are the commandments, the things that God has spoken. And remember, we saw at the very beginning that God had already given out the commandments to Adam and they were being passed on to his children, such as the Sabbath, such as being fruitful and multiply, such as um, the ordination of food, etc. So, and when he saw the fifth seal, I saw under the altar of souls them that were slain for the word of God and for the testimony which they held. That testimony is faith. So not only did they have the commandments, but they also had faith. And verse 10 says, and they cry with a loud voice saying, O Lord, how long, O Lord, holy and true, doth thou not judge and avenge our blood on them that dwell on the earth. So these people have perished on account of righteousness sake. Uh, as we saw for the word of God and for the testimony which they held, they have been martyred on account of those two things. And guess what they're crying out for? They're crying out for judgment and they're crying out for vengeance. They're not crying out and saying, God, have mercy on those people who did evil to us. That's not what these souls are saying. They're saying, God, I, I pray that you judge them. And I pray that you also bring vengeance upon those who killed us in the earth. Now, this is quite contrary 
a quite contrary spirit to that which we may hear in the church and we may hear among uh, synagogue circles. But this is scripture. The scriptures, <laughs> the scriptures will shut the mouth of pastors, teachers, theologians, because it's clear what's happening here and what Abel's blood is saying to God. It's crying out for vengeance against his brother. Now, the key expression is that they are requesting judgment and they're requesting vengeance. The difference between the righteous and the wicked, the, wi the wicked in the earth, they take vengeance into their own hands. Someone does evil against them. Guess what? They go and they either do evil against that person or um, hire someone to do evil against that person or they uh, secretly do something against the people who who wronged them. That's what wicked people do. That's Those are the wicked actions of people who do not understand God and do not understand the Bible and do not understand how God is going to take vengeance on the wicked people in the earth. Now, the wicked also, like I said, mentioned, or excuse me, like I like I mentioned, they they take vengeance into their own hands. Juxtapose that the righteous wait on God. That's what these souls are doing. They're martyred, obviously, but they're requesting of God vengeance. God, can you take vengeance upon my enemies in the earth? Think about all the righteous souls who have perished on account of the wicked doing harm to them. Deuteronomy chapter 32, verse 43 says, God will avenge the blood of his children. Who is his children? The children of Israel, specifically speaking. It's the Israelites. From generation after generation, there's subsequent slavery with the Egyptians, the Syrians, the Medes, the Persians, the Greeks, the Romans, uh, the Europeans, the Jewish people, uh, even the indigenous Africans. The Israelites have been in subsequent slavery generation after generation. But God says that I'm going to take vengeance. I will avenge the blood of his children, verse 43, and he will repay those who have done evil to them, who have harmed us and who hate Yahweh and, and Yahweh Shai, also known as Elohim and his son, Jesus Christ. Now, this passage in Revelation is obviously referring to a future expectation of the children of God and warns the wicked, but encourages us that judgment is coming to the wicked nations in the earth. Now, keeping things in context, we see obviously that Cain has murdered his brother. So there's evil in the earth at this point great evil. Not only had Adam and Eve sinned and fell short of the glory of God or the standard that God had set for us, but Cain followed in their footsteps and has become the child of the devil and as a consequence is perpetuating evil in the Verse 11, and now art thou cursed from the earth which hath opened her mouth to receive thy brother's blood from thy hand. Okay, verse 11, 
is specifically referring to the curse that God laid upon him. The thing I want to focus on is the fact that verse 11 says that now you are cursed. So God is saying that Cain himself is cursed. And that, how is he cursed? He's cursed from the earth. Now, this could mean um, from the uh, the fruitfulness that the earth allotted uh, that brought forth food for them, because we saw, uh, obviously, in Genesis chapter three, that God had cursed the ground and told man that uh, from dust you are to dust you shall return and that the earth will now produce thorns and thistles. But God did not necessarily say that um, that the earth would not yield its produce if you work for it or it, he also mentions sweat and how sweat uh, we'd have to earn our bread through sweat meaning that we would have to labor uh vigorously but even Cain now we could say his uh curse is multiplied by 2 right it says that now you are cursed uh from the earth which you have which has opened his mouth to receive your brothers blood. That's what verse 11 is about. Now, verse 12 says, when you till the ground, it will not yield its strength. A fugitive and a vagabond shall thou be in the earth. Now, God tells Cain two things. Originally, the ground was cursed, right? In part. Now, the earth will, now the earth will yield no strength at all for Cain. God stripped Cain of his usefulness. Now, Cain is no longer useful in his occupation as a farmer, right? Because originally Cain was a farmer. And so his occupation was that of agriculture and farming. He will no longer farm. So God stripped him of his usefulness in that regard. Instead, he will be like a wandering animal. Now we must keep in mind, he's still human. But he says that Cain will be a fugitive and a vagabond. The Hebrew word for fugitive means someone who is fleeing to avoid persecution. Now, keep in mind, these are, or excuse me, now keep in mind, there are more people in the earth, right? However, the focus of this narrative is exclusively on Cain. Now, Cain, now in this situation, we're seeing how Cain was cursed with insecurity. He will forever be in perpetual fear of judgment. That's what a fugitive means. Secondly, the Hebrew word for vagabond, it means, it can mean essentially the same thing as a fugitive, someone who uh, is fleeing from judgment. Um, but this word vagabond means to be a wanderer in the earth or someone who is never at rest. Now, keep in mind also, when it comes to that word rest, we saw um, how the Sabbath, we're supposed to give ourselves a Sabbath rest, which is Friday, even, tr Friday evening to Saturday evening. Uh, we also observe the new moon Sabbath, which is in keeping with and keeping close to the calendar, the biblical calendar. Uh, we do our best to keep the new moon Sabbath and also the seventh the seventh day Sabbath, Friday evening to Saturday evening in honor of 
God's commandments here in our home. Um, nevertheless, uh, there is a rest that we are looking forward to so that we will not, we will no longer have to work. You go to Hebrews chapter four, verse nine, it says that there is a rest for the people of God. Now this is evident, or excuse me, this is evidence that Cain will not enter into God's rest, which is promised for the people of God. Cain's uh, future outcome is judgment. Continuing on, I'm going to read verse 13. And Cain said unto the Lord, my punishment is greater than I can bear. So verse 13 is Cain's response. Is it not of remorse for robbing his brother, his brother of life? He says, my punishment is greater than I can bear. Cain, where is the remorse for your sins? Are you going to acknowledge that you murdered your brother, that you stole life from him. Instead, he's concerned with the consequences which will overtake him. Jude, I'm going to reference a, a New Testament book that mentions Cain's name. Jude, verse 10 and 11, sort of alludes to Cain's reasoning being equivalent to a brute beast. Now, some have interpreted that expression to mean uh, reasoning like an animal. And I on, the, I, on the other hand, do not look at human beings as animals. Um, I believe we're created in the image of God, regardless of what we see here on earth. But I believe this expression means that it is an attitude of aggressiveness, an attitude of uh, a haughty, uh, we can call it the bully mindset, is what Cain possessed. Whereas Cain is only concerned about the consequences of his actions. He's not concerned about the big picture or the small things, right? He who is faithful in little will be faithful in much. Cain wasn't concerned about the small things of God, you know, keeping the commandments, hey, sacrifice with blood. This is how uh, you come to God. This is how you uh, get forgiveness of sins. You sacrifice with blood. He wasn't concerned about the small things and he couldn't see the big picture that God had come to him asking for a confession. It's a warning to us. Are we only concerned about the physical things, life, food, sex, sleep, etc.? How much more must we be concerned about spiritual matters? I think a whole lot. Verse 14, it says, Behold, thou hast driven me out this day from the face of the earth, and from thy face shall I be hid. And I shall be a fugitive and a vagabond in the earth, and it shall come to pass that everyone that finds me will slay me. So Cain fears the not only a cutoff from God and the perpetual karma that he's faced with that could come back on him. Someone could kill him, right? He's going to be uh, uh, cast out by God. And then after he's cast out by God, someone's going to find out what he did and kill him. Or some someone going is going to learn that there is a murderer in the earth and they're going to take him out in fear of their own life. 
Now, keep in mind, again, as we've said, there are other human beings in the earth at this time. Not Neanderthals, actual humans. There's no such thing as Neanderthals. Many uh, so-called scholars, pseudo-scholars, and pseudo-theologians hypothesize that there were Neanderthals or cave, uh, we could say, uh, subhumans in the earth. Um, the Bible is in absolute disagreement with that. There's no such thing as a Neanderthal. If we, if you ever hear the term Neanderthal, we need to deduce automatically that that person is a human being and has always been a human being. But this is by philosophers and theologians who have absolutely no understanding about reality and the scriptures. Verse 17, Cain knew his wife is one indication that there were other people in the earth. And then also Genesis chapter five, verse four says that Adam had other sons and daughters. Adam was between the age of one, right? He was one day old when God created him on the sixth day, but he was between the age of one and 130. And keep in mind, obviously Adam and Eve were made mature, meaning that they were of full adult age when they were first created. So there was need, there was no need to uh, go through the maturation or the development process at all. So Adam was between one and 130 years old when Cain and Abel were, were, uh, were born to him and his wife, because it was at the age of 130 that Seth was born unto them. Okay, so keep that in mind. Now, verse 15, And the Lord said unto him, Wherefore, whosoever slayeth Cain, vengeance shall be taken on him sevenfold. And the Lord set a mark on Cain, lest any finding him should kill him. So God promised to slay anyone. And as I mentioned, there were people in the earth. So he mentioned that if any of those people in the earth slay Cain, uh, then vengeance will come upon them. Now, many have hypothesized that uh, this means that God was showing mercy on Cain and um, and God's a merciful God, although God is a merciful God. But I think the uh, the proper understanding of this is, first of all, uh, to a degree, it's true that God was showing mercy. But later we'll see that there are prohibitions against shedding men's blood because man is made in the image of God. So God was only showing mercy on Cain because according to God's laws, it's against God's laws to shed the uh, shed the blood of a human being because human beings are made in the image of God. It wasn't necessarily that God was showing mercy on Cain. It was on the fact that God cannot contradict himself. Okay. Now, in addition to that, God placed a mark on Cain. Now, there's much debate over the mark. All right. Is the mark physical? Is it spiritual or both? Right. Those are logical questions. This mark, essentially, we can deduce from Scripture, is a curse, obviously, which is placed upon Cain. Now, Cain obviously knew about this mark or this curse. God told Cain, now you are cursed. 
I proved earlier in my episode of Adam how Adam was a black man. Now, some theologians, especially Christian theologians, if you go into these commentaries, they'll sell you, they'll tell you that Cain was cursed with dark flesh. Well, how could that be when scientifically it's been proven that the first human or the first humans were dark complexion or dark complexioned? So we need to make sure that there are uh, that number one, we're keeping to scripture. And then also number two, there, there is good science being done that corroborates the scriptures that does not contradict the scriptures, but you got to have discernment to know the difference. So Adam was black and uh, his children obviously were of a dark, darker of a dark complexion as well. So we can't say that Cain's mark was dark flesh. That's a contradiction, just like it is a contradiction that somehow Ham, uh, Ham's curse was dark flesh and all the children who have dark flesh are accursed. It's absolutely moronic. It's And that uh, Hamite hypothesis has been circulating in Christianity and in Jewish circles for hundreds of years, hundreds of years, probably going back to the second century. And I'll do some episodes on that. I'm going to get to... Uh, deepen into the topical structure of that argument. Uh, I want to stay right here in the text. So I want to prove, first of all, that that mark is not black uh, black complexion. And I just mentioned um, a few reasons why. Um, number one, it contradicts science. It contradicts physiognomy, genetics. We can go on. Um, there's it, it contradicts scripture. Uh, just to name a few. Now, according to the Midrash, which is a Jewish text, it declares that the mark was leprosy or white flesh or a lack of pigment pigmentation. Now, the Bible does not, excuse me, the Bible confirms that leprosy or white flesh or the absence of pigmentation is or can be a curse of God. We'll see that happen to Moses and uh, Miriam, and a few other people in Scripture that leprosy or the, the lack of pigmentation is a curse upon God. But we are not 100% on this being the mark that was placed on Cain. Um, we do know the consequences that, are that was placed on Cain. Men and women could have potentially knew that Cain was cursed. Now, keep in mind that the earth is not going to yield its strength to Cain at all. So if the earth is not going to yield its strength to Cain and all the other people are living, living around Cain, so to speak, and while the earth is yielding to them, it's not yielding to him. They're like, man, this guy's cursed, right? He's not bringing forth fruit, right? It's sort of the equivalent of suppose if, and I'm not uh, picking on homeless people because uh, I've been there before. But suppose if you see a homeless person on the street, uh, most people say that a homeless person is cursed. Look at them. They're, you know, they have raggedy clothes. They're sleeping on the sidewalk. They're carrying around their life in a basket. That person is cursed. They're not bringing forth fruit. So uh, there's this mental picture in our mind that uh, this essentially is. This, and I'm saying this essentially could have been one of the indicators 
uh, to the people that Cain was cursed. Not saying it's an absolute fact, just a matter of conjecture. Of course, I'm not reading into the text. I'm just telling you, uh, unlike I do on most podcasts, I leave out my opinion, but uh, that's that's just my own opinion. Um, but we can explicitly look at the text and see what the text says. So first of all, the earth would not yield its strength. And then secondly, uh, he would be a restless wanderer. And then uh, uh, thus, by his fruit or lack thereof, we can see we can see him for who he is. So this could have been the physical identification, just using the scriptures uh, to draw that distinction. Again, we don't know specifically what that mark is. We can have some conjecture about it, but evidently Cain knew what it was. God knew what it was. And it's very likely the people around him also knew what that mark was. Verse 16, and Cain went out from the presence of the Lord and dwelt in the land of Nod on the east of Eden. Now, Cain exits the presence of the Lord. Now, this could be a euphemism implying there was no goodness to follow this man. As we mentioned, Cain is cursed and everything around him is cursed, so to speak. Um, It makes sense considering the expression is tied to Eden. Remember, uh, God put a cherubim blocking the tree of life and he had expelled Adam and Eve from the Garden of Eden. So, uh, we know that the tree of life and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil uh, was not accessible to them. Now, whether or not it was still on earth at that point in time uh, is a matter of conjecture. We don't necessarily know. The fact that it's mentioned here means that it could have been very well and then it was taken away. Um, But we know that human beings do not have access to that area wherever that area is. Now, we saw earlier in the text, um, like I said, Eden was off limits to them. But I want to mention something from the Wisdom of Solomon, okay? The Wisdom of Solomon is a book in the Apocrypha, which was in the Protestant Bible. It was in the 16th, 11 uh, King James Version Bible. It was removed, excuse me, it was removed from the Protestant uh, Bible, if I'm not mistaken. And... um, they feel like it's not uh, scripture. There's a there's a lot of uh, theories on what the canon should be, but uh, if you go into the apocrypha, it's all very relevant. In fact, it pieces together the Bible very eloquently. But I'm going to read from the Wisdom of Solomon, chapter ten, verse three and four. Uh, I'm not going to read those verses explicitly, but I do. Uh, there is something mentioned of Cain here that's very relevant. It says that Cain was the first human who rejected wisdom. And we saw, uh, we see in the book of Proverbs, Proverbs chapter one, verse seven, that the big, that the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. And I mentioned in last week's episode, how Cain lacked wisdom. He lacked the fear of God and the fear that comes with keeping God's commandments. Right. So fear is the beginning of wisdom. If you don't have the fear of the Lord, then you don't have wisdom. And in addition to that, he's also the first unrighteous person or the first wicked person in the earth, which is going to lead to the the destruction of humanity in Genesis chapter six. Uh, He and his offspring are pretty much the reason 
why the earth was destroyed by water the first time. And we're going to get to that as we continue our narrative. The word or a word from some historians, um, some of you are familiar with Josephus. He was a, a historian back in the first century, second century. And he stated that Cain was the personification of evil. Uh, Philio, I believe he was, uh, we, I think people refer to him as a church father, uh, referred to Cain as an atheist, which in a way is true. Uh, he knew God existed, but because he was a fool, he could care less. Now, back to the text, I just wanted to mention those two things. Now, Cain left the presence of God to dwell in the place called to dwell in a place called Nod, which means a place of wandering. Keep in mind he was cursed from the earth and cursed to wander. Instead of wandering, he settled in the place of Nod. Verse 16 it says, And Cain went out from the presence of the Lord and dwelt in the land of Nod on the east of Eden. Now, verse 17, and Cain knew his wife. And she conceived and bore Enoch, and he built a city and called the name of the city after the name of his son, Enoch. So Cain knew his wife. Again, we said that there were other humans in the earth. So he knew his wife, which means they copulated. Uh, and as a consequence, they brought forth a son. His son was named Enoch. Now, the, the name Enoch means dedicated, which was derived from Cain dedicating the city that he built after his son. So God, so, so God uh, pronounced judgment on Cain, told him he would be a wanderer, and he went and dwelt and dwelt in the city and built a city after the name of his son. The name of that city is called Enoch. The geographical location of that is currently unknown. Now, this further shuts the mouths of the heathen, which argue that there are uh, that there were millions of years of Earth's history, right? It took it took human beings millions of years to build a city, to come out of the caves and to do all these things. But right out of the gate, Cain built the city. He was the first architect, we could say, which is mentioned in Scripture. We can also say that Cain is the father of city life. And we know a lot goes on in city lives or in cities. You have more people, more crime, more opportunity to sin. And this makes sense given the life that Cain has chosen to live. Verse 18, and unto Enoch was born Irad, and Irad begot Methuselah, and Methuselah begot uh, Methusael and Methusael begot Lamech. So this is very interesting. So Cain has five generations of sons. Uh, first of all, he begot Enoch, and Enoch was born Irad. Uh, Enoch's name, or Enoch's name, we said mentioned, or means dedicated. Irad, his name means fleet. Now, uh. Irad's name may be associated with uh, Iradu, which is the first city in Sumerian tradition, right? So Irad 
again means fleet in Hebrew, which could imply Arad built boats to travel on water. And keep in mind that human beings were given dominion over the ocean. We were given dominion over the land, over the ocean. We were told to, to pretty much dominate the earth. Well, it appears that Cain's sons are doing just that. They're dominating the earth. Now, how are they dominating the earth? They could be following to, into uh, in Cain's footsteps, which we've seen that happens to the sons. The sons follow into the footsteps of their fathers. And we will get to what's going to happen, obviously, in our narrative. But it would make sense that Irad, um, who, his name, whose name means fleet, it could imply that during this time, men began to build boats or men began to have navies or to build navies or to have military structures. It's very plausible. And I just want to mention a side note. I hope, I hope we're seeing the early demonstration of technology being expressed right out in Genesis chapter four, right? We're hundreds of years into human history uh, just a few hundred, and we're already seeing the mass development of technologies being done by human beings. Cain built a city. Irad likely built the first naval system. It's quite a different picture than picking up sticks and fighting with twigs. The biblical narrative suggests something completely different. Irad begot Mahayel. This was the third generation from Cain. His name means smitten by God. Of course, the term smitten could mean many things. It could mean that he was smitten by God. It could mean his children were smitten by God. It could mean the earth or the people in the earth were smitten by God. In addition to that, Mahayael begot Methusael, which is the fourth generation. Methusael, we want to notice, first of all, how the names are ending in L. And if you know anything about Hebrew, the, the word L is short for Elohim, which is short for God. Now, could this mean that they felt that they believed that they were gods in the earth? It's very likely. Remember, earlier in Genesis chapter 3, the sin or the temptation that came through the serpent was that they would be like God, knowing good and evil. And it would make sense considering that there are children of the devil and children of God. We saw that in the prophecy in Genesis chapter 3, how the serpent will have a seed that was at enmity with the seed of the woman or the seed of the children of God. And we see that right here in the names mentioned in Cain of Cain's sons. Now, I guess we may never know if that's 100% true that these human beings felt like they were the gods in the earth, but I believe that's a very plausible logical deduction considering that the earth is going to be destroyed by a global flood later in our historical narrative the word or excuse me um mahayael begot methusael 
And Methusael's name means who is of God. Now, again, we, we know the semantic range of those expressions, but Methusael begot Lamech, and Lamech's name means powerful. Okay, so those five generations from Adam, or excuse me, five generations from Cain, mentioned here as Cain went out of the presence of God. Now, if you read their names, it's very interesting to note that it seems that Cain's children, again, were ruling the earth and they began to dominate the earth. Listen to this. Okay, so I want to mention the uh, the five generations of names and then I'm going to uh, tell you their names in a preposition. So listen carefully. So uh, from first generation to the fifth generation, we have Enoch, Irad, Mahayael, Methusael, and Lamech. Okay, now I'm going to mention what those names mean in order. Dedicated fleet smitten by God, who is of God, and powerful. Now, it could mean that these, again, that expression or that those prepositions seem to imply that these people were mighty in the earth. And they were going to be destroyed by God. It was a prophecy, essentially, in their names. And they could have not been aware of something like that. But we're going to stop there. We're going to stop right here in verse 18. And we'll pick up our narrative again next week. In summary, what did we learn here? Cain failed to take sin seriously. And although he continued to experience the blessings of God, judgment is coming. Tune in next week when we pick up our historical narrative in Genesis chapter 4, verse 19 to 24. In that episode, we focus on Lamech and his two wives, Ada and Zillah. As always, all praises, all honor, and all glory to the Most High. Shalom. Thank you.